chapters of the new of the Old Testament. This is our third sermon on that uh, passage. So, when you think of the great chapters of the Old Testament, you you ought immediately to think of Exodus chapter 34, up there with chapters like uh, Genesis 15, for instance. Uh, and so we're we're just looking at verses 29 uh, through 35. the conclusion of the chapter, which Paul cites in 2 Corinthians 3. This is what we read. Now, it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had commanded him, or whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. Uh, What a chapter, what a chapter. Uh, We praise you for it. We ask you that the preaching... Uh, though it can never do justice to a passage like this, nor any of the passages, that it would just be a help. That's all it needs to be. Just let it be a help, Lord, a, a, a small light to shine upon your word and to give it fresh power and new life in our lives. And if it does that, then we will praise you indeed. Uh, we don't need our senses or our, our ears tantalized. We just, need, we just need the solid meat of the word. And give it to us now, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I say, we're in this great chapter, Exodus chapter 34, uh, and, and, and let me just go even further and say, if you ask me, what is the great chapter of the Old Covenant, I wouldn't hesitate to say this chapter. And uh, we had seen in the prior passage what we called the renewal of the covenant. I think I titled that sermon something like The Covenant Remade, with a special emphasis on the Ten Commandments. You notice that in verse 28. Uh, the last verse of what we read last uh, time. And uh, of the Ten Commandments, there was a special emphasis on the first four. Commandments 1, 2, and 4 are quoted in that passage where worship is seen to be the cardinal concern. Uh, So that we discover uh, this not only being true of Israel, but, but it perhaps casts a new light on what the covenant means. The key concern of the covenant that God makes with Israel but we could speak more broadly, as I'm trying to do, is seen uh, as worship. The covenant is established to safeguard the true worship and also to, uh, to, uh, sorry, to safeguard, I, I misspoke, to safeguard against false worship, but also as a way of expressing our commitment to the true worship of God. That's how we ought to view the covenant uh, with Israel, but, but in general. Now, the passage which we have before us concerns Moses coming down from the mountain and meeting the people there. 
As Moses uh, closes his time with the Lord, the Lord uh, puts the tablets in his hands. He tells him to write to write this, these down as well. Let's see. Uh, he says, write these words, uh, which he does. And then he, uh, he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, he being the Lord there. Moses goes down from there with the tablets coming again to the people. And there uh, there is a wonderful occurrence that, well, occurs, that uh, the face of Moses shines. Moses comes to the people with the tablets in his hand, but that isn't what they notice. What they notice is the shining face. Uh, so that Moses came to the people now full of the glory of God, you might say. And uh, the people beheld it. They beheld the glory of God in the face of Moses. Just think of that. He was like an angel to them in that moment. But what happens uh, is not that they are amazed so that they worship God, but rather that they shrink back in fear because their hearts still struck them with a sense of guilt. And yet Moses calls them to him and there he gives them, as God had told him to do, the commandments, the Ten Commandments. And it is after this that uh, we, we read that he began a new practice, and this is what Paul seizes upon in 2 Corinthians 3, which is to veil his face when speaking to the people. Only when he returned to the Lord, we read, uh, into the presence of God, he would take off the veil. And the sense that we get from this passage is that this was more or less an abiding thing. This now became the practice of Moses. When he spoke to the people, he would veil his face because he had been in the presence of the Lord. And again, his face was literally shining. But when he went back to the Lord, he would speak to the Lord with his face unveiled. And that those two things become uh, cardinal points that Paul seizes upon. The veiled face, the unveiled face. Uh, and I'll, I'll save that. I'll save that for later on in the sermon uh, uh, when we come uh, especially to Second Corinthians chapter 3. But let me turn now to what in my mind are the key points of the passage. And the first being what we read uh, in verse 29 that Moses came down from the mountain. Just in those words, we find our first point of significance. Uh, Coming down from the mountain is uh, the essence of the office of Moses. For he was ever going up and down the mountain. That's what we find throughout the book of Exodus. He was going up the mountain into the presence of God. but But he was going down the mountain into the presence of the people, to be their mediator and to be their teacher. Uh, But we could also see here, if we were to spiritualize the thought of the passage, and I remember Spurgeon doing this on his book on the ministry, and I'll return to that thought in a moment, but as encapsulating what uh, prayer means, or what it means to pray, it means going up the mountain. There's something wonderful about spending time with God. That ought to change us and even to put a glory upon our face, though we do not see or know it. And the result of spending time with God in prayer is that we come down the mountain with good news from God, bringing good news to others. For we come down, the reason we come down, the reason we do not stay with God at all times is in order to bless others. And that indeed was the office of Moses. One who spent much time with God, but he, always wasn't, he wasn't always with God. He was often with the people. But he was always going back and forth. Returning to the idea of Spurgeon, 
he speaks of ministers with this in mind, telling them that they ought always to go to the people, not just with the law of God in their hands. Of course, they ought to do that, and that's what Moses does here. But they ought, they ought to view their office as coming down from the mountain, having spent time with God in prayer, and, and, and full of the presence and the glory of God uh, spiritually. So never go to the people, he says, without first going up the mountain, and then come down to the mountain and meet the people there. Well, the next set of points I borrow from Matthew Henry, he speaks of the significance, this is the second main point, the significance of the shining face. Uh, and then we'll look at the veil and then the unveiled. So the face, the veil, and the, 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 uh, the face unveiled. And then we'll look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as a fifth point. But the significance of the shining face as he comes down and, as I say, his face was shining like the face of an angel in the presence of the people is seen first in that Moses did not know it. And how often this is so, that the graces which believers possess are not seen by them, they're seen by others. They are seen by others to be those who are full of grace, uh, those who are often in the presence of God and reflecting, as it were, the glory of God in the presence of others. And yet, so far as they're concerned, not only do they not know it, but, but often even regard themselves as graceless. How often the believer has faith yet imagines he is none. So Moses, in a sense, becomes a picture of that. The significance of the, of the shining face is also seen in that the glory of Moses' office appeared. Remember, Moses stands as the head of the Old Covenant. There's no one who stands above Moses in the Old Covenant. Not a single figure. He was one, as we've seen recently, favorite of God. God speaks of him that way. He was a, favor, a favorite of heaven, highly honored. Who else do we read in the Old Testament talked with God like this? Continually communing with God. Coming into the glory. Yet God was pleased to bestow this honor, for he found grace in his sight. And God would have the honor bestowed upon a servant to be known by the people. He would have Moses stand highest in the old covenant. And nowhere does, does this appear more than in the shining face. Of course, we're also aware that what shone upon his face was a reflected glory. It was not the essential glory of Moses. Moses was a man. He was flesh and blood like you and I. But what was shining was the reflection of the glory of God that he had just experienced. But when you come to the New Testament and you meet and read of one greater than Moses, the one who stands higher even than he, you find one whose face shone out of his own essential glory, especially in the transfiguration, but also in the resurrection and especially there. There, the glory of Jesus Christ is beheld as the glory all his own. Not the reflection of God's glory, but the very glory of God, beheld by the disciples. John, we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father. And so when you think of the glory of Moses, always think of the greater glory of Jesus. That's the scriptural way of thinking. The, the significance of the shining face is also seen in, the, in that the people were afraid of Moses. That is what made them afraid. That he came to them with the glory of God. And to think that he came with favors from God. He did not come to rebuke but to bless. But they were afraid. And doesn't that sound familiar? We think of Peter in the boat. 
telling Christ, uh, get away from me. Christ meant no harm, yet he was afraid. And why? Because the more glorious God and his ministers appear, his ministers, I'm thinking of Moses in particular, the more our sense of sin will grow, especially in times where sin is fresh, as it was here in the case of Israel. They had recently committed the great sin of idolatry through the golden calf. And so when God comes to us in his glory or the ministers come to us in the glory of God, it will arouse in us a sense of the guilt of sin and we will be afraid. And like Peter, we will want to get away or like the people here. When the sense and the guilt of sin is fresh, we will always imagine that the glory of God is against us rather than for us. So the shining face becomes a picture of that as well. But uh, fourth and finally, the shining face was in reality a great favor done to the people. For though God was put off by their sin and they had reason to be afraid, God's preference for Moses, as indicated in the shining face, put them in a good standing and favor with God. So long as they did not reject Moses uh, as their mediator. To be the friend of Moses, the favorite of heaven, was to be the friend of God. That was the great opportunity that God was offering to Israel. And he offers to us in a still greater way through Jesus, obviously. But looking at them, you realize that their life uh, within the covenant and their relationship to God was made to depend upon Moses. But here God was indicating to the people that Moses was someone whom he favored and whom he loved And even to some degree in whom his glory resided for the benefit of the people. But to shun the mediation of Moses was to cut off the only means of their reconciliation. And so Matthew Henry says it was a great favor to the people and an encouragement to them that God put this glory upon him who was their intercessor. And then speaking of Christ, he says, thus the advancement of Christ, our advocate with the father is the great support of our faith. That is, turning now to Jesus Christ and seeing in him, again, the same point, the more his glory appears to us, the more apparent it becomes that he is highly favored of heaven, that in him the Father is well pleased, that he is the favorite of heaven, and that through him, as God, the glory of God is being revealed to us. And and if now he should appear before the throne as our intercessor, we find the strongest, well, we find a favor done to us. All the glory that is revealed in Jesus is a favor to the church because it is, as Henry says, the strongest support of our faith to find glory present in our mediator and our friend and the friend of God. The strongest support of our faith so long as we make it to rest upon him in whom the glory of God is revealed and not upon our sinful selves. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Psalm chapter 2. Make peace with him. But what about the veil as a third point? Again, I follow Henry in noting that as he says, ministers must accommodate themselves to the capacities of the people and to preach to them as they are uh, able to bear. Let all that art and all, uh, let all that art and all that learning be veiled which tend to amusement rather than edification to spiritualize the thought again he says uh, do not preach to the people beyond their capacity 
You might spend uh, all week in the study, let's say in the presence of God, uh, full of grand and rich theological truths. But you can't come to the people and overwhelm them. You cannot ignore the condition that they're in. In a sense, that's what Moses is doing there. He had a great deal to offer to them, but they couldn't bear it. And so he had to accommodate himself so that he did not overwhelm them and crush them. Do not preach to them beyond their capacity. That's what Henry is saying. But he doesn't mean preach to them in the way they insist, in the way their itching ears demand. You see, he repudiates that too. Listen again. Let all that art and all that learning be veiled, which tend to amusement rather than edification. Preach to them according to their ability and their need and what best suits them. Do not seek to overwhelm them, but give them only what they can bear and what tends to their edification. Sermons are not times for story or art or learning, nor are they times of profound learned theological discourse. Sermons are times for solid Bible teaching and exhortation when the minister of God brings the law of God to the people in a way that they are able to to understand it. And so the veil becomes a spiritual picture of that, the office and the task of the minister. The minister coming to the people and seeking to help them and not to overwhelm them. And yet I would note at the same time, I I agree with Matthew Henry, but at the same time I have to say on the other side that Paul actually says the opposite. He notes uh, as a point of contrast that the preaching of the new covenant is, is marked by the fact that it comes to the people unveiled, not veiled. This is what he says, and I, I want to seize upon this later, but let me just so it briefly here. Therefore, he says, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. That is speaking of us ministers. He says, uh, not that we are sufficient of ourselves uh, to think anything is being of, from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. That's verses 5 and 6. And those are the ones, he says, who were given boldness and frankness and openness of speech. In other words, as the ministers of the gospel, this, these new brand of preachers were preaching, they didn't put a veil on their face. And yet they had something more glorious to offer to the people. This is one of the, the amazing things to notice about the new covenant. It's this new way. And this new method, unlike Moses, he says, returning to 12 and 13, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at what was passing away. And so it becomes, in a sense, a spiritual picture, but it also is a point of contrast. Moses, in accommodating uh, himself to their weakness, was also accommodating himself to the weakness of that dark and shadowy dispensation. The old covenant was a weak, a, dis, a dispensation of weakness. And that's what it is a picture of more than anything else. The veil. But now we have something more glorious. And we are able to proclaim it in a more glorious way. In other words, we're not so limited as Moses was. We can be franker. We can be bolder. We are able to make an open proclamation and a bold declaration of the good tidings from heaven. And uh, we'll return to that as our our fifth and final point. But for now, we should see, uh, as I said, that the veil pointed, uh, therefore, to the weakness of that dispensation. If they could bear more, perhaps he wouldn't have needed the veil. 
but as it was, he needed it. In fact, to, to go a step further, what Paul is saying is that the veil was supposed to be there. That the glory of God was meant to be veiled. The, the purpose of the ministry of Moses was as much to conceal as it was to reveal the glory of God. And here the veil was a picture of the concealed glory of God. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But before we turn to that passage and consider its argument as our final point, let us uh, make one final observation about this passage. And that is the veil taken away. So we've seen coming down the mountain, the shining face, the veil, and now the veil taken away. Which again points to two things. And uh, spiritually, seeing this as a picture of prayer, as Moses left the people, he was preaching to them. But as he returned to the presence of the Lord, he took the veil off. This is a picture of prayer. The fact that no, uh, that there is no veil which man needs in the presence of God. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't need to accommodate ourselves to him. We might need coming from his presence to accommodate ourselves to others and to present our message uh, in a way that they can bear it, taking into account their state and their condition. But as we come into the presence of God, we need make no such calculations. We might come to him simply as we are. In fact, that's the invitation of scripture, not just to Moses, but to all men. Come unto the Lord with an unveiled face. The Lord is ready for all that we are and all that we have, even at our worst. There isn't anything about yourself that you have to hide from him. In fact, that is just the essence of a hypocritical prayer to be pretending before God. When you know already that he knows all things, who are you trying to impress? That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six. Why don't you just say, Lord, Father, you already know everything. Even before we ask, you know what we need you know what we are, you know what we've done, you know what we will do. In the presence of God in prayer, the soul is laid bare before the Lord. And so stop pre- pretending. What is the use of that? Take off the veil. But more importantly, as a second point concerning the significance of the veil which is taken away, as Paul points out in Second Corinthians chapter uh, 3, verse 16, that the effect uh, now concerning the people in their relationship to the proclamation of the covenant. The relationship between the ministers as they proclaim the word of God and the people. The effect of the new covenant, he says, is that the veil is taken away there too. Not just in the presence of God, but in the presence of the people. The effect of the new covenant is the veil is taken away. And so now let us turn as our final point to those arguments. And you might uh, wish to look at 2 Corinthians 3 at this point or perhaps uh, just listen along. Uh, I don't need to read those verses again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 7 through 18. Paul is seizing upon this event, the shining face of Moses, which was veiled. And he is finding, uh, you might say, uh, the spiritual significance of the old covenant in contrast with the spiritual significance of the ministry of the new covenant ministers. Again, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient as ministers of a new covenant. Paul is pointing to the significance of his ministry and his preaching as unveiled in contrast to the preaching of Moses as veiled. It's a picture of the contrast between the old and new covenants pinpointed in the, in the act of preaching. Isn't that amazing? 
And yet you realize Moses, when he veiled the face, it's as he was preaching to the people. But it's always significant when we find an Old Testament text cited, and not only cited, but expounded in the Old Testament. Paul was, in essence here, preaching that passage. He was preaching a mini-sermon on Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. And that is always an indication to us that the New Testament is the only proper lens by which believers are to understand our Old Testaments, and certainly at such times where uh, the New Testament deals with an Old Testament passage explicitly. But we also notice that very point is the point which Paul is making, that the Jews did not understand their own scriptures because they lacked the lens by which to read it. But we possess it. Well, again, the central assertion which is being made here in verses 5 and 6 is that Paul was a minister of the New Covenant not a minister of the Old Covenant. And as a minister of the New Covenant, he was a minister not of the letter, but of the Spirit. To to finish the quote, he said, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the New Covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know, that's a passage that's become almost like a slogan. The Spirit gives life, but the letter kills. Uh, but, But people, I don't think, understand what that passage is about. You have to be careful when you take those kinds of phrases and make them slogans. Well, I won't go into a lengthy exposition of that, but uh, what we need to understand from those two verses, verses 5 and 6, is that it is a contrast in ministries, the ministry of the Old Covenant, the ministry of the New Covenant. And as we look at the verses which follow in verses 7 through 18, we could break them down under three simple headings. The first thing he says, and this is not surprising given what we just read in Exodus chapter 34, Uh, For for everyone who wants to denigrate the Old Covenant and to say it's nothing and has no consequence and no significance and perhaps even to say, you know, why are we even bothering preaching it in a New Covenant church? The first point is that the Old Covenant was glorious. Now, who could deny that after what we just read? We find the glory, the very glory of God shining in the face of Moses. And you want to tell me there's no glory in the Old Covenant? No, Paul says. He wants to stress earnestly the greater glory of the New Covenant, but by no means to suggest that the Old Covenant possess no glory. Even though he will say that by comparison, that which had glory appears to have no glory at all. Verses 7 through 11. When you compare the two covenants, it's as though the Old Covenant had no glory at all. This is where we stumble. We look at the Old Covenant in comparison to the New, and we say, does it have any glory at all? Well, that's just because... Our eyes are all but blinded by the glory of the new covenant. But if we look at the old covenant on its own, and we just consider what God was doing there by way of anticipation for the new covenant, and the greater glory to be revealed there, we will have to say, yes, indeed there was glory. That the glory of God was being revealed. Who can deny it? It was found in the face of Moses. But by the time we come to the new, we say, how much more glory is found in Christ And even in the lips of those who preach the good news concerning him compared to Moses. And so the second point which we find in verses 12 through 15, I'm just summarizing the argument. Uh, This was uh, two sermons when I preached it. Just these verses was two sermons when I preached it. All I can do is summarize it now. Verses 12 through 15, what we also see, and there's no surprise here, this is exactly what we read in Exodus 34. That glory was veiled in the Old Covenant. And indeed, Paul goes further. He speaks of the abiding relevance of Scripture and of God's arrangement with the Jews. He says, it's veiled even to this day for the Jew. 
When the Jew reads his Old Testament or he listens to it read in synagogue, a veil is placed upon his heart. There's a barrier in the preaching, you see. The way the word is ministered to him. That picture of Moses with the veiled face is an abiding picture. And what this tells us is, as I said earlier, the office of Moses was meant to conceal. Because the glory of God was meant to be revealed not in Moses, but in Jesus Christ. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, verse 13, 13, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. They weren't meant to see it. But when you look at the other side, the new covenant ministers. It's totally different, Paul says. Verse 12, again, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Or another word that could be used is frankness or openness. The ministers of the new covenant, as they bring the word of God to the people, are able to use boldness and frankness of speech because their office differs from that of Moses as they are ministers of a different covenant, not of the old but of the new. And the office of the minister of the new covenant is not to conceal but to reveal, to make things plain. But then as a third point, again, seizing upon the veil, which is taken away, Verses 16 through 18, we see that the veil is taken away only when one turns to the Lord. That's what he says in verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whoever you are, when you turn to the Lord, there goes the veil. And in comes the clarity. In comes the light. In comes an apprehension of the glory of God. And so... In reality, what you realize Paul is saying is almost as though uh, the office of Moses is resembled by the office now of believers. That we are enabled to turn to the Lord with an unveiled face in the new covenant. We are able to turn away from man and his sin and behold the Lord and put off the veil. Whoever turns off, whenever one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But we can't stop there. We have to understand that Paul is speaking of the bold and open and frank proclamation of the gospel. The, the, the clarifying of the glory of God in the new covenant. Something greater than Moses ever preached or that they ever saw in the face of Moses. We have to understand that is what Paul means when he says whenever one turns to the Lord. And beholds the glory of God with an unveiled face. In other words, we ought to be clear. And we should have no difficulty being clear, understanding the emphasis of Paul in his preaching. Who the Lord is that we are meant to turn to and in whom the glory of the new covenant appears to us now with unveiled faces. And the Lord, for for Paul, invariably, as in the preaching of all of the new covenant ministers, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by turning to him in faith and repentance that the veil is taken away and that we are able, like John, to behold his glory, glorious of the only begotten, the Son of God, beholding the glory of God in his person and work. But Paul also says, and you can understand why this was more than one sermon, he also says, Wait a second, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit. We might even supply the word also. Whoever turns to the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus, 
Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? But we ought to remember that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, although they are not the same person, they are the same God. As Jesus declares that he is one with the Father, so he is one with the Spirit. Uh, So much so that when Paul in Romans chapter 8 is speaking of what it means to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he says that you have the Spirit of Christ. Or Jesus, in speaking of sending the Holy Spirit, says to uh, his disciples, though I go from you, I come to you again. To have the Spirit of God is to have the Spirit of Christ. To have the third person is to have the second person. It is equally to have the first person. For you cannot divide the Godhead. And so the Lord is Jesus Christ, verse 16. But the Lord is also the Holy Spirit, verse 17. And where the Spirit is, there is liberty, he's saying. Not bondage, but liberty. To turn to Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit now dwell in you. And to give you the glorious liberty and life as sons. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he gives liberty. And indeed, he goes further, verse 18. It is to be like Moses, one who, in beholding the glory of God by faith, with an unveiled face, are not only beholding the glory of God, but are being transformed by it. So that as we behold the glory of God, we are made to partake of the glory of God. And the glory of God is even in some measure said to be, uh, or not to be, but to reflect from us. Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. And so as I close. I would say or I would emphasize. That we ought to see what Paul sees in this episode. We ought to get a glimpse first Of an instance of the glory of the old covenant. Don't ever say that the old covenant wasn't glorious. It was. Yet at the same time. We also have in this passage a chance to reflect and to rejoice in the greater glory of the new covenant. And that glory appears to us. In of all things. The ministry of preaching. It appears in the way we ministers of a new covenant are able to speak frankly and freely with the people, not with veiled faces, but with unveiled faces. With the message that whoever turns to the Lord will not only be saved, but the veil will be taken away and he will behold the glory of God and he will be changed by the glory of God. Paul, in speaking of the ministry of preaching, to the Galatians, says that Christ crucified was plainly set before their eyes. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Which is just a way uh, to refer to the preaching of the cross. In other words, a plain, a bold, an open declaration of the cross. Christ was set before your eyes as crucified. How? Through the preaching. Not veiled, but unveiled, openly. And this is something Paul is saying that we ought to thank God for. The ministry of the new covenant. We ought to rejoice that the preaching so weak and so contemptible though it be in the eyes of the world. Is a continual setting forth of the riches of the glory of God which are found in Christ alone. That is a new covenant ministry which is worthy of the name. 
And indeed, so it becomes to us not a demonstration, Paul says in another passage, of human power, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power. That is divine power. And where the spirit is, there is liberty. The liberty of sons. A liberty and a ministry of the spirit, which continually, though perhaps slowly and imperceptibly, is changing us from glory to glory. Just as by the spirit of the Lord. Amen. And let us uh, return thanks to God through praise now as we stand and sing together hymn number 390.